This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 78 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and today I am joined by Bob Odenkirk. He's a zealot of the comedy world who has, in recent years, reinvented himself as a top dramatic actor as well. He started out as a writer, winning Emmys for his work on both Saturday Night Live and The Ben Stiller Show, also contributing to The Dennis Miller Show and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He gave occasional but memorable performances on The Larry Sanders Show, Roseanne, and Seinfeld. He co-created and co-starred in Mr. Show with David Cross. He discovered Tim and Eric, and the list goes on. But everything changed, in a sense, in 2009 when he was tapped by Vince Gilligan to make a guest appearance as the lawyer Saul Goodman, a.k.a. Jimmy McGill, on AMC's critically acclaimed and soon-to-be cult favorite, Breaking Bad. His involvement with that show grew by the year, and even when it came to an end, his work with Gilligan did not. As it turned out, Gilligan and Peter Gould wanted to create a spinoff show, a prequel of sorts, named Better Call Saul, in which the backstory of Saul Goodman would be explored. Two seasons of the show have now aired on AMC, and for his work on each of them, Odenkirk has received an Emmy nomination for Best Actor in a Drama Series. Over the course of our conversation, the 53-year-old opens up about his love of comedy, which first manifested itself at the age of 10 when he began writing sketches, grew at 12 when he first discovered Second City, and led to his first major gig in the comedy world at SNL, where he experienced a series of tumultuous years. He talks about transitioning from a writer into a writer-actor and now even acting in projects that he had nothing to do with writing and how that impacts the way he crafts a performance. And he talks about the fateful series of events, starting with Mr. Show, interestingly enough, that led to his casting on Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul and about the acting challenge which he's experienced on both of those shows of playing a character who is playing a character. We talk about all that and much more, so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Bob, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for giving the show some attention, of some course, love. Of course. There's a lot of great people who work on Better Call Saul. And whenever these awards come up, you know, it's always a weird thing because I'm like most people. I feel like awards is probably a, a mistake. <laughs> you know, you can't really compare what people do. Right. I always think when John Hamm was not winning, it was like, well, what do you want him to do? His character is emotionally shut down. Right. He he can't emote because right. his character doesn't emote. That's who he he's doing a great job right. of playing a guy who has no access to his emotions. And then they waited until he did. Well, I mean, yeah, that was good. I'm glad he got one. Right, yeah. right. So we always begin just by asking, where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? Oh, I was born in Berwyn, Illinois. Grew up in Naperville my whole most of my life and my dad worked in a 
industry we call business forms or whatever. He would make a billing form or whatever for your hospital or company. He was a funny guy. He made jokes all the time. But it was kind of a boring job to describe. But it it, it took some ability as far as like drawing. And it was kind of a challenging thing to do. You can do it on a computer now at home, right. what he did. Right. And my mom was a housewife, as they say, seven kids. So there was a lot going on. From reading to prep for this, my sense was there were two things that were pretty clear to you from a very young age. First of all, you were interested in comedy. And, yes. And secondly, you wanted to get the hell out of, like, small town. Yeah, I mean, look, my, the town I grew up in is a really wonderful town. It's actually exploded. It was 20,000 people when we moved there. It's 170,000 wow. now or maybe more. So it really exploded. But it's a great great little town but you know like any teenager I, I really was like claustrophobic in that town and so when I turned about 14 15 I really wanted to move on and I got out of there when I was uh, 16 and but I go back all the time still so to go back to the comedy aspect though can you explain how this started and you, you mentioned your dad was a funny guy but where did it come from that you were Interested yeah. enough at the age of 10 you were starting yeah. to write stuff? Uh-huh. Yeah, I would go down in my room and write comedy bits. And, you know, look, I don't know. I, If you try to take the pieces apart and figure out where it started, it's a little challenging. It's just something that you love and you you do it. I, mean, I love Monty Python, which was on uh, Channel 11 in Chicago, the public broadcasting yeah, yeah. channel. And uh, The Goodies was a show that I also watched that was on uh, Channel 11. And my dad loved comedy, too, but he loved stuff that I didn't love. He loved Hee Haw and Benny Hill. Right, right. But I, I watched it a little. I mean, you know, it couldn't help it. And I guess I feel like I kind of suffered through those things. But <laughs> when we got a Panasonic recorder, one of those little cassette recorders yeah. that was the beginning of everything because you could record yourself and make a little fake commercial or a right. tv show or something and i guess a big moment was when you first visited second city which you did at it a was young. a huge moment because that was a neighbor uh family was going and they had an extra ticket and they brought me in i think i was 12 but i might have been 14 i, I i'm gonna do the numbers on that george went was in the cast jim belushi Don DiPolo was in the cast. He was a famous Second City guy and teacher. I might be mixing up two casts here, but I went twice when I was like 12 and 14 or something like that. Anyway, the thing about it was when you live in a town like Naperville or when you live far away from Hollywood, you know, you just don't, even if you love writing or comedy or acting, the, the part of your understanding that says, well, you could do this for a living and you could work hard at it and make, it, make a living at it, be in the business of it, you just don't have that thought because you've never seen anyone who does it for a living. And so that's, I don't think that's a bad thing. It can be good, but, you know, in order to chase some dream or whatever, you kind of have to believe it's possible. Mm -hmm. It could happen. So going to Second City was seeing professional actors right in front of you people doing that job and i guess making money and you have the thought that like oh adults do this right you know so you a few years after that go off to college what did you imagine you were going to be doing with your life what was the i mean I, I i look i knew i loved comedy a lot right. i was writing it all the time and and recording it and and then in college i did different comedy groups 
mostly on the radio, but also some live performance. I, I got a degree in broadcasting, which is as close as I could come to saying I want to be in show business. Mm-hmm. And so you graduate. What, what was the first steps into this? Nearly the end of graduating college. I left before I graduated. I had three credits left to um, get a degree. But I had gone to Chicago to interview Joyce Sloan at Second City. And in the process that same day, I interviewed a fellow named Del Close, who's a famous improvisation teacher. And in the course of that day of interviewing both of those people, I kind of got a glimpse behind the curtain a little bit of, you know, people making a living and a career out of show business. And and it, it made me think, OK, I'm going to go for this and I have to get on it. So I left college and I moved to Chicago to do sketch and improvisation. And you... Is it correct that you basically set a limit for yourself that if it doesn't work out yeah. at a certain point? Yeah, I kind of told myself if I turn 30 and I haven't made a living at this, then I kind of owe it to myself, the future me, or <laughs> to go do something else or figure out what else I could do. So I, I gave myself another way to look at it instead of a deadline. It was like freedom to to screw up right. for, for 10 years, right. you know, and, and figure it all out and not make a living at it. But I'm a pretty responsible guy, you know, Catholic family, Catholic childhood. And so I wanted to be responsible about it anyway. Well, let's, let's talk a little more about Del Close because I mean, I, as I understand it, this is a guy who at through Second City really shaped a lot of people in the comedy world. And in fact, the way, I don't know if this was the first time you met him, but just, I read that it was kind of amazing at one time when you met him. Yeah, that was the first time I met him, and it was a chance meeting, and uh, it was kind of a an amazing circumstance that I had just interviewed Joyce Sloan at Second City, and I was in a bookstore down the street, and he came in. Now, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I didn't know what he looked like. I'd seen his name on Saturday Night Live where he was an acting coach or some credit they gave him, yeah. and I'd seen his name on the program at Second City, which shows you that even as a kid— I must have loved comedy so much that when I got that program, like I read every name and thought, who's that? And that name's a pretty distinctive one. And so it stuck in my head that this was the director. And and then I heard the girl at the counter talking to him and calling him Dell. And I went up and said, are you Dell Close? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I just interviewed Joyce Sloan. Can I interview you? And he said, that's great. This is a perfect day to do it. I he had just quit Second City the day before for the final time. He'd quit numerous times before. Yeah, he had a rambunctious life. There's a great book called The Funniest One in the Room by Howard Johnson. And it tells Dell's story, which was a really incredible yeah. big old mess that's really fun to read, but probably wasn't as much fun to live. <laughs> Yeah, so I sat with him and interviewed him and uh, recorded it, and I still have most of that recording. That's great. But his, from, from his work and then from the work that he did after that day, which was then he was going out on his own again, from the work he did after that day came Improv Olympic and UCB and all the teaching he did and the Herald, which is a form that he was developing you know, at the time. All this comedy and improvisation that, sort of has its roots in that guy's brain, started sort of the next day after that for him. Well, and, and so he's very associated with improv. You are now as well. Well, I am, but, you know, I was never, you know, there's people, I was in, I was in improv because it was close to sketch, right. and that's what I loved. I loved Monty Python, 
And I loved Credibility Gap, uh, which you should look up if you like sketch. Uh, and I, lo- I love Saturday Night Live and Marty Feldman. And I, I love sketch comedy. So the improv is kind of close to that. But I was always writing. I was always writing. And, and it was a bit secondary for me to, to do it the improvisation way. So you did not actually perform as a part of Second City initially? The first thing for you was Yeah, SNL. I mean, most people would kind of make their way through the Second City system, right? Yeah. You know, you'd audition and you'd get in the uh, touring cast and stuff. But I knew pretty much right away that I, I couldn't suffer through that long route, that that takes years. Right. And I knew that I just wanted to write my own stuff and do it now, this week, this Friday. You know, I'm doing a show next week. That was my life. Right. And, and that's what I did. So I knew early on, I, as much as I loved Second City and it was a part of my childhood and it meant so much to me, I was not going to be patient for that. So I just started writing my own stuff and doing it anywhere I could in town. You know, Chicago is a great theater town. It's still a great theater town. There are stages and you can even make a living or make some money, you know, which doesn't need to be a good living at that age. And so uh, then I met Robert Smigel through that work and Smigel got hired at Saturday Night Live through another friend of ours, Dave Reynolds. And through Franken and Davis, it's a, you know, it's a typical showbiz story, all these six degrees of separation or whatever, whatever, six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever. (laughs) And so Smigel got hired and we had been writing sketches together. And and so through him, I made a inroads at Saturday Night Live. So I went to Saturday Night Live and after being there for three years, my friend Tom Giannis, great sketch director, writer, was put in charge of the Second City main stage show made the director and he said he wanted me in it and I had made a few friendships with Joy Sloan and people at Second City so they conceded they allowed that to happen I mean they thought that was kind of neat actually Joyce Joyce always liked to shake up the cast and put somebody in who you know didn't come from the system of course, it made everyone mad who was right. in the cast and everybody who had been waiting in <laughs> right, line. Right. And I knew all the guys who'd been waiting in line because I'd started with them and I liked them. Right. But I kind of bumped them for right, at right. least for two and a half months. Well, so you were there simultaneous to doing SNL. Yes. The last few weeks of that Saturday Night Live season, I would I would kind of skip out. Second City has improvs every night of the week except for... Friday night when they do two shows Friday and two shows Saturday and and they skip the improv set Friday night because it's too late and they got to do two shows the next night. But I would come home from Saturday Night Live. I did this twice. I would leave after the read through, fly to Chicago, do the improv set. (laughs) Totally not supposed to be doing this. (laughs) And then uh, and do the show through Saturday night and then fly back to SNL and write Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. Unbelievable. Now, Part of that little story is I wasn't a very important writer at Saturday Night Live. So I wasn't particularly missed, and that's just the truth. I mean, and I knew it at the time. I wasn't that effective at Saturday Night Live as a writer, even though I wrote on a few really great sketches and I wrote one or two really great ones. Mostly I was fairly ineffective. I didn't, I just didn't fit the way things are done there very well sort of regimented and no i mean nothing against them i mean they have 
there's jobs to do at that show. That show owes its audience certain things that I was um, not going to be helpful with. So when you were there, just to recount a couple of key points for the listeners, you I know you often worked with Smigel, but you also, yes. also Conan O'Brien, who was a young writer there, yeah. and I think you were roomies as as We shared an there. office, Conan and I, for one year, and Conan and Smigel wrote a lot together. Uh, there was one year where Greg Daniels was there, too. Early on, it was Greg and Conan and, and Smigel and me who wrote a lot together. Yeah. And in that group, I probably wrote the least of, of those four. And I, and I definitely wrote less than Conan and Smigel. They were both great writers, and Smigel in particular was an incredibly important writer to Saturday Night Live. So in 1989, you guys win a writing Emmy, but this frustration, I guess, of not getting a lot of your stuff onto the air right. and also wanting to perform more and yes. more, right? I always knew I wanted to perform. And so part of also, I think one of the things that was frustrating about going to SNL was I knew that I wouldn't be able to perform there because I wasn't good enough and I wasn't going to get good enough by being a writer, you know, all day, every day. So I kind of was a little frustrated just right off the bat, but I couldn't say no. These were things that were hard to say no to. Saturday Night Live and, and Second City were both things that probably for various reasons I shouldn't have uh, done. What was your you know, experience with Lauren? Do you think you could have communicated oh, I was that a you would have? pain in the ass. <laughs> I was a huge pain in the ass. Well, I, I just read the uh, Tom Shales oral oh, yeah. history, and that was interesting. And it's a great one. Yeah, and but I, I, you know, the thing that people seem to repeatedly say in there is that he withholds compliments you know you will only get feedback if there's something wrong and that's a management style that for some people they feel they find that it gets people to try harder but it can also alienate people i think you i think you said it i think one of the things that i've come to grasp is just how hard it is to do the job that lauren does because of the uh amount of it (laughs) I and mean, the so guy has yeah. so many sketches. Yeah. It's so much and so many hosts and so many shows. And I mean, it's easy to sit back and watch the show, tune in when you feel like it, tune out, ridicule it, you know, hold it to a standard that it that never existed, you know. You know, I don't know if you could find a perfect SNL episode, but I don't think there is such a thing. And, and as a result, you know, especially if you're a pissy, you know, young sketch comedy writer like I was, you know, and you're comparing it to Monty Python and you're comparing it to the greats, you're going to be like, well, that sketch doesn't match up with the best ever done. And you're just going to be hard on it. And, and you, you just lose the sight of the fact of, of what that show is. And I certainly did. I still learned a lot. I mean, look, after I left SNL, I'd worked with Jim Downey, Jack Handy, Robert Smigel, Al Franken. These guys were the best sketch writers. Bonnie and Terry Turner, great sketch writers. So I learned a lot just being around those people. A lot of that applied to um, Ben Stiller's show and then Mr. Show. Right, because, well, let's let's just, before we go to those, because I know this, this was quick on the heels of that, but basically... 
you mentioned there were a few sketches that you were particularly proud of. I think one of them started at Second City and then appeared at SNL. Yeah, the motivational speaker with Chris Farley. I know that 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 has to be what you're talking That's about. That's one. And I did write that at uh, at Second City. So is that one of, when you personally talk about the ones that you're proudest of? That you oh, were, for is that sure. One That's in yeah. the top three. You know. What are some of the others? Well, uh, Manson Lassie was kind of an amazing thing at the Ben Stiller show. Yeah. Everest at Mr. Show. I got to say, with Bob and David, the show we just did on Netflix, yeah. I really love Rooms the Musical and the and the dry cleaner sketch that comes before it. And I really love the cop stopping the guy at the traffic stop and him trying to get, you know, the trying to provoke the cop. <laughs> Those are two... Those are great. ...that are really outstanding, I think. So... You left SNL. You were not yeah, fired, I, right? I was not fired. Very generous of Lauren. <laughs> I would have fired me. Right. Um, and I'm not kidding. I would have fired me. Just because you were a smartass well, or it's what? It's just been like, who's that sulky guy in the corner who's not contributing that much but seems to think, I guess he thinks that he's better than this right. and I'm paying him? Get him the <laughs> hell out of here. I would have said, go, go struggle in show business Elsewhere. a little yeah, bit more right, and, right. and see what you think, see what you have to offer us all. But I did leave. I, I knew I, I knew that I either had to become a performer, mm-hmm. you know, and be good enough, get good enough, or I had to fail at that and, and make my peace with it. So, and I also knew that if you stay at, at a job like SNL, Lauren is very loyal and he'll keep people on who just say, keep me on. Please, right. please, I want to prove myself. Right. And if I'd said that, I'm sure he, I mean, he wasn't going to let me go as far as I know. I actually had gotten better towards the end. Like I had finally, it become more second nature to me what the show needs for a sketch. So I was actually getting kind of good just at the very end, literally the last half of the season of wow. my fourth season. Right. And I was helping Chris Rock and Adam Sandler and Spade and really enjoying that. So I actually was becoming a useful person. But I just knew I, I had to go and try to try to figure out what what else I could do with what I wanted. So the I guess the next big thing, as you mentioned, was the, the Ben Stiller show. But in between them, you had a couple of interesting choices to make. And I think one of them, you ended up choosing to write for Get a Life, which was a short-lived well, thing with Chris I Life. was lucky to get that job. I knew I wanted to, if I could, get a job, keep working, but also have time to perform. So is that why you turned down something else to do that? Well, you know, they were interested in me as a writer for The Simpsons. The Simpsons. They didn't offer me a job. I came in and met with Sam Simon and Heidi Perlman. We had a great meeting and they liked my stuff, but I don't know how I knew that it was so much work, how I'd heard that or whatever, but it was animation. It was really hard and it was, and it is really hard. They work very hard over there. And I just thought, well, that's exactly what I can't do. I need time to be able to get on stage and do my little comedy bits. So Get a Life looked like it was a fun show, and I love the first season of Get a Life so much. Adam Resnick wrote, I think, eight, seven or eight of the first season's episodes. Great episodes. Marjorie Gross, great writer on the first season of Get a Life. Some great, great comedy writers, and... It just had an amazing spirit. I went there. The second season, I think, was 
probably not to the level of the first season or maybe, yeah, not even near it. But the first season of Get a Life is some of the funniest comedy you'll you'll find anywhere. Well, yeah, Chris Elliott's a funny guy. But oh, the, super funny. But the Dennis Miller show was your your actual acting kind of debut. Well, yeah, Dennis put me on as a guest, and I did some comedy bit that was like a monologue. I don't even remember what it was, but, you know, Dennis was uh, helpful to me and, and gave me that chance. And uh, you need that first opportunity to just get in front of the cameras and do something and, and see how it feels. And maybe that's where Stiller decided to... Well, Ben uh, and I shared an office also at Saturday Night Oh, really? Yeah. Ben wasn't there that long, and but while he was there, he and I shared an office. And I really liked him, and I liked his sensibility. And we got along well, and we I helped write pieces that he had ideas for. So we had written together. And then Judd, you know, he was doing stand-up and seeing everybody, and he saw me do my one-man show in uh, in Santa Monica, which was me and Andy Dick, actually. It was a two-man show. So Judd and Ben, I knew both of them. They knew me, and they and they put me in the cast of the Ben Stiller Show, which is a huge break yeah, yeah. for me. While writing. And, to and the, also writing, yeah. So I guess it was just lasted only 13 episodes, but you did get no. your second Emmy with that. That's right. And then I think that where you, maybe people came to really think of you as an actor, because they don't, most people don't know who's writing their stuff, but I think it was probably, wasn't it this recurrent stuff from 93 to 98 on the Larry Sanders show where they're seeing you as this, as this crazy agent? Yeah, Stevie Grant on the Larry Sanders show, another big break for me from Gary Shandling, who... Um, had interacted with us, come on the Ben Stiller show as a guest and knew Ben and Judd. And, you know, he really helped me to get that part and he wanted me to do well and helped me do well. Great performers on that show and a different sort of tone of performing that was closer to kind of a realistic acting than, yeah. than the sketch comedy that I mostly have done. And so, yeah, it was a first effort in, in acting and, you're right. Probably that's where people may have thought, oh, well, maybe this guy can act. And simultaneously still writing with, I guess, when Al Conan's got Late Night with Conan. And yeah. I did help out with Late Night with Conan, but I was living in L.A. and I would fax in. Really? Back when there was faxes. Remember faxes? <laughs> and I would fax comedy bits. Yeah. Also during that period, you met somebody who has factored in ever since, who is David Cross. Yeah, David Cross and I met on the Ben Stiller show actually before that. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, Janine Garofalo was a mutual friend and she brought David by to play basketball one afternoon because David was visiting and there was nothing to do in the day. And she said, you like to play basketball. My friend Bob likes to play basketball. I'll bring you over there. And he came over in the afternoon with a basketball. Now, we're not nine years old here. But you can picture nine-year-olds, right. and it'll be it. It will express the feelings that David suffered through, which is he came to my screened-in door. I'm inside eating a sandwich. The door's open, just the screen is shut, and he's standing there with Janine. And Janine's like, "Hey, Bob," and I go, "Yep." She goes, uh, "My friend David's in from Boston. You wanna? He wants to play. You wanna play basketball?" And I go, "No, nah, I'm eating." And then they walked away and walked home. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> so how did this re get rectified to the extent that you guys... Well, then were... ben, then David was on the Ben Stiller show, right? and he did a sketch. He offered to do a sketch that was kind of a parody sketch, and I was kind of down on parody, even though I helped with some of them. Right. 
And I, I was like, good luck with that. You know, I gave him shit for agreeing to write this parody that they wanted him to write. It was his first week. He was trying to be cooperative. And then he's like, fuck, this guy won't give me a break. And then after the show ended, we'd, you know, we saw each other. At the time, there was this great scene happening in L.A., alternative comedy, with, a, you know, kind of monologue nights with the Uncabaret, Greg Barrett, Janine Garofalo, Dana Gould, Patton Oswalt, David Cross, Paul F. Tompkins, Margaret Cho, Kathy Griffin, wow. an amazing group, and we were seeing each other all the time. And and then Dave Rath, a friend of ours who's a manager, started a comedy night, and we both did sketch shows, and I said, David, help me with mine, and I helped him with his, and we connected. At that point, then, we really connected, like, boom. We were writing sketches together, having a great time, and it's been the same ever since. I and so, Mister Show came from came from those clips. Those why shows. not just merge our sketch work? Yeah, I mean, I did a sketch show, and then David did one three weeks later, and essentially they were Mister Show, both of them. And this was on HBO, four seasons, thirty episodes. Introduced a lot of these other young comedians to the general public: Jeff Black, Sarah Silverman, on and on. Nominated for multiple writing Emmys, still has a cult following. Didn't quite break through to the mainstream, no, right? did not, no. I mean, it was on HBO at a time when HBO's, you know, was an important leader in cable, but it was still, the movies were the number one thing, and their biggest show was Deaf Comedy Jam. And we also were kind of for an audience, a younger audience, and they didn't really play to that yeah. age group. If there had been a Comedy Central, maybe it would have belonged yeah. there yeah. more. But um, Chris Albrecht and Carolyn Strauss were the executives at HBO who backed us and Chris wanted... Chris a big comedy background, right? Wasn't he like a Chris, doorman yeah, somewhere? Yeah, Chris was at the Improv, I guess, yeah, a yeah. doorman there. Yeah. He runs Stars yeah. now. And I don't know if you saw the thingy, the interview he did where he was kind of complaining about the Emmys. Did you see Oh, that? yeah, I, I think yeah, we yeah. did it. I you think guys it was, did it. Yeah, I think it's yeah. in the reporter. <laughs> But I mean, look, you know, if anybody knows, he knows. He worked at the HBO. Right. He, he made the Sopranos right. and Sex and the City happen and all right. those Emmys. Right. And he, I guess he said something like, you know, look, it's about, look, it's about money. You know, you got to have the money to back these things. Yeah. I mean, maybe to he's just. To some extent, but not. Uh, not maybe to... he's just got to, he's just, you know, look, it's hard when you're doing your best work. Right. And you're proud of everybody who's working and you're trying to rise above. And in this, this landscape. Yeah. I love using that word for <laughs> for the channels on TV. Right, is right. The, landscape. the platform, the all the landscape that. Yeah. is grass and trees. Right. It's not TV shows on Netflix, <laughs> right, but anyhow, right, right. You know, it's just hard to rise above, right? Because there's so much great stuff. There, yeah, it's impossible. To, it's we were impossible. just saying 130 categories. I mean, what do you or do? Whatever. What yeah. do you do? I always ask all the you know reviewers and critics yeah. this. Like, how do you? I mean, you must just decide, like anybody. Look, I'm going to watch more TV than a normal person, but right. I'm not going to try to watch every. I'm just no, going to. It's, it's, there's not literally not enough hours in the day to watch everything. And, and you were talking about Bloodline, yeah. before we did this interview, yeah. and how great it. I haven't had a chance to watch it. You can't see everything, but I think from my point of view, you both try to follow the buzz, and when you also. I mean, are, what about the Nick? Yeah, I mean the CW Nick is, or whatever. Not, I, excuse me, not the CW. Is uh, it on Amazon? Uh, no, it's no, the it's Cine, on Hulu. Uh, Stars. Stars. No, what? I don't no. think it is. It's Cine, Cine something, Cinemax, maybe. 
It's, I mean, it's Soderbergh. Somebody call it's, in. This is not a call-in <laughs> show, but I want you to call the Hollywood Reporter. I, I, I know the show. Find the number and call us and tell us where we can watch right. it. <laughs> okay, so the thing, though, that I gather you liked more about Mr. Show than SNL, aside from just generally being able to perform. Having total control. And having total control and, and only being censored, I think, once for saying... Oh, if you love it so much, then why don't you just go fuck the baby? <laughs> it's the only time HBO raised an they issue. They said, could you not right, say the right. fuck the baby line? But generally speaking, the difference that you saw was that on SNL, you can't really perform in the truest sense because you are just on such a time crunch that well, you're going Well, there were a lot of parts. things that, you know, look, again, Monty Python was my, you know, shining Your star. Grail. Yeah, my grail. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> And the kind of sketches that they did that I loved so much were so well written and so well performed and, and, and they were kind of they were great performances, absolutely, but the idea of the sketch mattered a lot and executing it really well mattered a lot and and that's what the kind of show I wanted to do. And you you know, that we got to do with Mr. Show. We had basically if you look at our production schedule, we had three weeks to to make each episode. It's how it broke down if you looked at the whole thing. So, you know, I mean, SNL, they have five days. We had three weeks. That's a lot longer to fix things, rewrite things, shoot things, cut things, rehearse. We rehearsed. We knew our lines. There were no cue cards on Mr. Show because we just didn't need them. We learned our lines because we had time. So is this where you went from being Bob Odenkirk, the... Huge asshole the, the, to Bob Odenkirk, no. the, what, uh, self-important? No, uh, well, I mean, but so you, you were actually now having to act, not perform a um, Yeah, you know, listen, I think I did some good acting on Mr. Show, and I would point to things like prenatal pageants, which these were things that were shot on film and played kind of real and, and needed um, maybe a little more... Um, you know, modulation than a typical comedy sketch could need or a live comedy sketch right. would use. So those are good experiences. I, I really think I learned the most on the Larry Sanders show. Really? Yeah, because that was a bunch of, you know, high caliber actors yeah. playing utterly real or as close as they could come. Yeah, I mean, Vince Gilligan, a few years into Better Call Saul, actually, because I hesitated to ask him why he ever hired me. I just didn't want to jinx it and have him go, because <laughs> I liked you in Thumb Wars. And then go, well, that's Steve Odeker. <laughs> and then have him go, oh, oh get shit. the hell out right, of here. Right, right, right. Wrong guy. <laughs> so he did say, you know, look, Mr. Show, man. I love Mr. Show. And so I do think there were a few sketches in Mr. Show that might make you think, okay, this guy can tone it down and dial it in when he needs to, and he has kind of a, a degree of commitment that's useful for drama. Right. Not much, but he's a perceptive guy, Vince Gilligan is. So after all of these years of basically being the zealot of the comedy world, because let's just note, think about how many of these are, you know, I'm saying this to listeners, I assume you've probably thought yeah. about this, but like Saturday Night Live, Larry Sanders, Seinfeld, Arrested Development, Mr. Show, Tim and Eric, now all the way through Tim and Eric and, and the stuff that you, you've done most recently with David Cross, it's like every important thing, the Conan stuff. So now, though, 
how does it come about that you are asked to be a part of a show that while it has its humor and you would be a part of the humor with Breaking Bad, it was always regarded as a drama series? You know, look, it is a truly a mystery, even though I did ask Vince and he said because of Mr. Show and he didn't go into it. I do think he goes off his instinct on things, you know, and his instinct's pretty goddamn good. I think he examines it pretty hard. You know, he, he scrutinizes his gut feelings pretty hard. He, he's not carefree. <laughs> he just isn't. Yeah, serious you know, guy, he's yeah. a very serious dude yeah. who sweats every <laughs> everything and every, everything he puts out. Yeah. On the other hand, he had to be going off his gut on me as an actor. Peter Gould as well, uh, who co-created Better Call Saul, I think was a big part of that decision as well. If I'm remembering it correctly, it was Peter and Vince who both thought I could do this role of Saul Goodman. So they trusted me. I mean, I suppose they were in a place where if I'd done a poor job of it, they could have just had somebody else come in and redo it. Well, because originally was it that you were being brought in for like a day part? No, it was was the first thing was they want you for three or four episodes. There were four episodes left of season two. They were, you know... In the middle of shooting, the part came up in like two weeks, the first acting of it. So we had to make the deal fast and agree to it. There was no audition. And I read it and I thought, my God, they're trusting me with this great part. Really fun. It's funny. Yeah. It's, you know, energetic. It's got this great, funny, cocky energy. And I said, hell yes. But I also thought there was a chance that I would show up and do it and have them go, thanks for trying, you know, we're going to get somebody else. Or that's not, the guy that's or not what we were thinking of. Yeah. Or, well, it was supposed to be three or four episodes and that was it. Really? So Yeah, it was you, a, that was what it was supposed to be. And then you so were getting good feedback? Or? And I actually couldn't do four. So that could have doomed me right there. I could only do three because I'd already, I was doing uh, How I Met Your Mother, yeah. sort of, I, I had a slightly recurring part on that show and I, that fourth episode that they wanted me for, I had already signed up to do How I Met Your Mother. So I could only do three. Now, the interesting thing there is that fourth episode that I was unavailable for, they invented the character of Mike to do the plot point yeah. that they were asking you know, Saul to provide. This is the Jonathan So Jonathan's Banks. character was created because I had to do How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> so we have How I Met Your Mother to thank for Jonathan Banks' multi-Emmy-nominated. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. And and then, then me and Banks and Better Call Saul. Right. And, uh, Unbelievable. But you know, look, it all goes back to Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould and the degree of care and focus they put into their work. And I think they do watch a performance like whatever I did, <laughs> Saul, and say, what do we like about this character? What is maybe going on here that's different from what we thought we'd written? Oh, maybe there's a show in this guy because this character's really fun to watch and he's putting up a front, so we don't really know who he is at all. So, so now we get to invent this whole world of who he might be. Now, would those be actual conversations about how the character... Would you talk to them about no. how things would I change? I was not a part of those conversations. No. no. And nor do I want to be. You know, look, I'm a better actor when I'm not directing, when I'm not producing, when I'm not writing. Because if you're a writer and you're acting in it, you know, sketch comedy, there's a lot of room to be a clown and, and be kind of broad... 
But if you're trying to dial it in and perform with any degree of sensitivity and focus, like I'm trying to do on Better Call Saul, you know, I don't I don't read a script and and I'm not like thinking about all the dead ends in the writing process or all the ways it could have gone or what I think I'm what what pipe might be laid here for a later plot point. All I know as an actor is what they wrote and what that monologue is, what those lines are, what those lines are trying to achieve in the moment. And that's all any character should have in their mind as well. I mean, people go through life, they have a plan for their day, they have a plan for their meeting or their interaction with a friend or, or enemy, and then they get to that moment and they try to deliver and then it goes haywire and then they think on their feet and they don't know where they're going to end up. And I, I like looking at acting as doing that same thing, as, as playing out life in those moments the same way as best I can. So I don't read ahead. I don't help. And that includes improvising, even though you're well-trained yeah. in it, you won't do it, right? Yeah, I don't want to do it. I mean, I don't, when I say I don't want to do it, it's not like they come to me and say, please improvise. It's, it's more like when I get the script and I'm looking at a line or a, you know, you'll, you'll get to a line and you might say, that's not how I would say it. Or I want to say this here. Occasionally I'll call Vince and Peter and say, can I say this line? Or I, I really want to express this attitude usually it would be a funny line but not often I don't do that maybe twice a whole season more more what I try to do is go look at that monologue say I'm having a hard time this doesn't make sense to me I would say it this way and I go you know what this is your job read that thing again and read it again and read it again and break it down and break it down and figure out a way to make that work those words in that order exactly and that i think is a challenge um, it's it's no fun in a way yeah. but you know come on man it's a job and and i think by doing that also maybe i get a character that isn't what i would do and it, it's somebody very different from me right. who talks unlike me and thinks unlike me and so that's all to the good, you know? Yeah. Could you believe the cultural impact that, or just the penetration of the culture that Breaking Bad, before no. we even get to Better Call Saul, I mean, people are still, after a few oh, years, yeah. throwing pizzas on the roof of Look, where they, all this that, stuff. Don't, please don't do that. <laughs> you know, really, stop with that. It has no meaning, and it's just, people live in that house. Yeah. You don't want that on your roof. No, but in a, in, even in a larger sense, though, I mean, people know who Walter White is who never saw the show right and all of that and now uh same thing with Saul and so I guess you know it's not often that a show breaks through like that and so also I guess the other side of that is when a show breaks through to that extent and then somebody comes to you and says hey we're thinking about doing a spinoff right. of it there's not a lot of room to go up right is that a scary thought it is now the one thing I would say is we if you Breaking Bad was so powerful in its um, excellence and in its social sort of acceptance and, and popularity and, and kind of zeitgeisty in the show of that moment for sure. And for many moments afterwards, actually. The show of that sort of TV era, really. That you kind of also 
you get to write that off a little bit. You get to go, well, nobody's going to be that big. I mean, we won't. Right. Better Call Saul's not going to be as big as Breaking Bad as far as being an impactful, new, fresh thing. I mean, Breaking Bad had that aspect to its success of like it was the first show that came along when people discovered streaming, discovered binge watching, and it was the perfect show for binge watching and streaming. Totally. So that's never going to happen again because those phenomena exist right. and they're not going to be new again. So there's a whole aspect to Breaking Bad's massive appeal and success that we don't have to worry about not achieving because no one gets to achieve it. We're not alone in that. And then just the excellence of Breaking Bad and the wonderfulness of it it as a piece of work. Yeah, you know, probably there aren't going to be many shows that get there for a while. That's okay. You know, what if we come close? No, well, that's Wouldn't the thing. That you guys good? have done great because I think the thing is, but what I'm saying is not a lot of people at the outset when the idea was first announced were giving you a lot of credit. They're saying Friends leads to Joey, all the different examples where it went wrong. Right. And Of course, and, I don't blame them. And we had all those thoughts and worries. I think the thing that Vince and Peter did that was so great, one thing they ended Breaking Bad before everyone had become exhausted by it. And so there was still energy, residual joy and desire for their writing and their storytelling. And then they came back with a show that was, they didn't lean on Breaking Bad. Like they didn't keep poking you and going, remember Breaking Bad? Remember, remember? They they just went ahead with a fresh character, a fresh set of circumstances And while there are Breaking Bad characters that come through Better Call Saul's world because it's all set in Albuquerque and a certain time period, they just aren't leaning on that. And they're not constantly waving it in front of your face. And you can see where they they really developed and let themselves go down a new road tonally and in every way. And to the audience and the critics' credit, because I really thought no matter how good we do, we could be we could be damned no matter how good we do but because it had a, enough of a fresh vibe to it and these guys are such they have such high standards i think everybody sort of recognized those two things and went okay all right we'll give you a chance yeah. here and for you as an acting challenge it's got to be an unusual thing where an actor is asked to go back and play somebody who they've already played and show how that person became that person. I mean, that's not a common thing. Did you approach Jimmy differently than you approached Saul? I mean, how do you keep it in your own mind in, in, in check? Well, look, you know, Saul, there was a, there's a thing that works in my favor and in our favor here, which is that Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad, in the first scene you meet him in, tells Walter White that this is a front. I'm, my name is not Saul Goodman. My name is James McGill. And I am putting on a show to get a certain clientele. So he tells the audience through that. And this is not who I am as a real person. And then from that point on, we only see Saul in Breaking Bad, except at the end when he's escaping that world. We only see him when he's at work. And he's doing his character and putting on this front and and playing one side of his personality. And so then when you go to make Better Call Saul, you do have a fair amount of freedom 
to say, well, now who is this guy when he goes home? And I felt the same way as an actor. I felt like, look, I know how he presents himself to the public when he saw Goodman, but I also know that you can give me almost anything. He could be almost anybody behind that facade because even he knows it's a facade. He's choosing to play that person. So it gave us a freedom that maybe when people ask me that question, you're not the first, I did feel that right away. It's not, I'm not cornered right here with this guy that I have to be and somehow marry him up with a different right. guy. He was not that guy he presented so he himself to be. To begin with, he was yeah. a fake to begin with, a fraud. So who he is behind the scenes, we get to make up from nothing we can decide. Has it helped or hurt you to not have seen the work? Because I understand you do not watch this stuff after it goes to air. Oh, I do. Oh, you I, do I now? watch it one time, yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, no, listen, I have to keep track of it. On better on Breaking Bad, I didn't watch the show for a little while, for the first two seasons. Now, look, I watched some of it to get the tone. I had these little kids <laughs> in my house, and I actually did try to watch it. And the one time I tried to watch it, and anybody who's a parent with little kids knows, kid came running in the room, and, you know, you... You know what Breaking Bad's like. Like, you want your kid to run in when right. Gus has got the box cutter out? Somebody's like getting literally like, melted. now I got therapy right. to pay right. for. Because uh, I left the TV on. Right. <laughs> well, okay, so the last thing really is just if you can give us your state of affairs, your state of the union assessment right now, where basically you are, I think for the first time in a major series the solo leading man you Jesus. are now a two-time best actor in a drama series a you've reunited with david cross for this yes. this netflix program for 30 minute episodes yeah and we were just talking earlier about the fact that at some point in the not too distant future i guess we'll see you as david carr in the miniseries adaptation of his memoir the night of the gun so just i mean if we had sat down and spoken when you were first approached by Vince Gilligan to come in for three episodes or four episodes yeah. and play Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, could you ever have imagined that that we would then potentially end up in a situation like this where it seems like it's going about as well as you could hope? Yeah, never, 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 never. I mean, the only thing I can, that makes me think about is when I performed in sketch comedy, which I did for most of my career, I often thought, you know, I enjoy performing this. I love to write it. But these other performers are more fun to watch than me. And I would probably maybe do better in a dramatic scenario because I have a somewhat muted energy as a performer. And and in comedy, you know, that bigness and broadness and that sort of immediate fun quality is great and it works totally in your favor. In drama, it's good to have the character kind of be myst mysterious and be a little bit like you kind of wonder what that guy is really after. So that, that works in your favor. It doesn't so much work in your favor in comedy. and sketch comedy, you know, come on, you shouldn't be thinking that much. You should really sit back and enjoy the silliness so i uh i don't know i had that thought not too often but occasionally i thought i should get out of the sketch business and leave it to the pros and and maybe i could do this other thing and you know outside of that i didn't pursue it 
I didn't go out and audition for much in the way of drama. Uh, occasionally, I auditioned for Alexander Payne's movies, it seems, every year or whatever, three years when he would make one. And I just, it, it, you know, because left to my own devices, I just want to go write some comedy. Well, I, ho- I, I hope you continue to do both. That's oh, great. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. 